Welcome to the FAIR Podcast. The Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing well documented answers to criticisms of LDS doctrine, belief, and practice. To learn more about FAIR or to make donations, visit fairlds.org. I'm Blair Hodges, host of the FAIR Podcast, and we're continuing our interview with Richard Bushman in this special Part 2 episode. We talk about a lot of different subjects, including the difficulties facing LDS graduate students, the challenges of Mormon research, and Richard's recent book from Oxford University Press, Mormonism, a very short introduction. We cover other topics, including temples, the LDS sacrament, Mormon cosmology, and the concept of Zion. Questions or comments about this episode can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. We're here again with Richard Bushman, and we're talking about a project he's also working on called the Mormon Review. It's an online uh, journal, an online magazine, perhaps, that uh, talks about contemporary culture and Mormonism. Tell us uh, a little bit about that project. The seeds of the Mormon Review were planted in 1965 with the founding of Dialogue. Because as I envisioned Dialogue, it would be a conversation between Mormons and the larger world. This is what Commonweal and Commentary and all the other religious-oriented journals of Catholics and Jews was about. It wasn't about finding out more about Mormons, but looking at the world through Mormon eyes. And I never felt that dialogue realized that potential. To a certain extent, it brought in outside things, but mainly it was navel-gazing, looking at who are we, what do we believe? What can we hold to? So um, now with the coming of the Internet and with the success of the blogs, I and a few others, Nate Oman, Jim Faulkner, Kaimi Wenger, uh, began to think that this might be the moment to see if Mormons can think about something beyond themselves. So the Mormon Review was founded a year ago as an online journal edited now by Nate Oman, um, in which the only rule is that you can review anything, a book, an art exhibit, a movie, a video game, any cultural artifact, so long as it's not about Mormons or by Mormons. And so we've had reviews on Battlestar Galactica, which is a little borderline because Mormons were involved, but it wasn't really about Mormons, and many other things. Uh, and my sense is that we have a fairly mature um, set of values which need to be developed, and the only way of developing them and actually finding out who we are is to bring them into juxtaposition with something outside of ourselves. So my hope is this will turn Mormons in that direction. So that you're still aiming to a Mormon audience with that. Yeah. And recently you just published a book through, uh, through Oxford in their very short introduction series. Uh, you wrote the book on Mormonism. How, how did that come about? Well, Claudia and I had written a book for Oxford called uh, Mormons in America and then reissued under the title of Building the Kingdom of God. And Oxford had a series that was taken over by the same woman who had edited the series in which Mormons in America came. And I just published the book, and at that moment, 
I was one of the obvious spokesmen for a scholarly take on Mormonism. So they they came to me. I knew the editors pretty well. Uh, and so they came to me and asked me uh, to write it, which I didn't know whether I wanted to do it, but Claudia says when something like that's handed you, you do it. So I did it. <laughs> Sometimes it's harder to write a very short introduction than it is to, to really go at it. What was different about writing a very short introduction as opposed to, say, writing a seven-year project on Joseph Smith? Well, you have to make a serious decision about what's important. And that's why writing short is always harder than writing long. Writing long, you don't have to make any decisions. You just pour it all out. But when you write short, you have to decide what you really, really want to say. And then you add to that that you had to write for a general audience who probably knew very little about Mormonism. So you had to say enough to be intelligible and yet to keep it compact. You find sneaky ways to get in a lot within this. You'll, you'll bring up uh, the difficulty facing homosexuals in the church in a, in a section about something else. You'll, you'll find ways to, to bring these small ideas in. Did you purposefully do that, where you say, I've got to sneak something about this in, how do I do that? Well, I did have a sense of certain issues that should be brought up. I probably didn't deal with the gay issue as much as uh, modern times requires. Um, but, you know, anybody who is in the Mormon church and thinks about Mormonism is always making juxtapositions in their minds, so they're all of these sort of hookups. And I have been asked to give many talks on Mormonism, so I'm always reorienting them. So it, it was not... It, I hope that it's artful, but in a way it was um, just kind of a simple-minded, direct way of telling the story as it uh, flowed from my, my head. How long did it, did it take to write? Oh, I don't know, maybe... Um, Six months, something like that. Did Claudia help you? Because she talked you into doing it. <laughs> she helps me with everything. She doesn't write passages, but she chews up everything that I write. and She's very good on getting sentences correct. And she's also very good on pomposity, trying to avoid posier positions. So you've had Claudia alongside you through a lot of these projects then? Is through all of them. Re- through all of them. She can read these things and kind of chew through them with you. Yeah. No, it's been... I've been very fortunate. I think it's been good for both of us because I read her her stuff too, and it's amazing. You know, I write something, I think it's good. She says it's gruesome, and I think, she's such a better writer than I am. But then she gives me some of her stuff, and I tear through it. <laughs> so it's just that another perspective just hears those sentences differently. Was there anything in, in the Mormonism or perhaps in Joe Smith's book where she said, you're totally on the wrong track? Was there anywhere where she tried to, to pull you back or send you down a different road? She is very sensitive to the promotional voice. So if I seem to be pumping up things, she says you'll be better off if you cool down at that point. I can't remember a specific one, but that's her perspective. Okay. Um, you start off the very short introduction um, kind of justifying a very short introduction to Mormon Mormonism. Why, why should we have a book like this? 
Earlier you mentioned that uh, Mormons need to stop justifying their importance by sheer numbers alone. There's, there's got to be more to Mormonism than, than just than being a growing religion or, or having a certain amount of members. Did that inform uh, the topics that you covered at all in the book, or perhaps the way you framed it, uh, rather than going from Mormons are legitimate because they have a certain amount of numbers, as opposed to Mormonisms are legitimate because here are some of the interesting ideas you get in Mormonism. Mm -hmm. I uh, was probably affected by a review in the Sunday New York Times by Walter Kern, a one-time Mormon, uh, now a man of letters, non-Mormon, who said, claimed that I had said in my book, and I think he was really talking about Mormons in general, demonstrate the proof, the truth of their story by the number of converts they have, you know. Uh, and he said something like, does that mean that all the letters to Santa Claus from little children prove there is a Santa Claus? So I was quite conscious of that. Furthermore, the growth pattern of the church was being challenged as I wrote this by a number of people, and we ourselves know, know that we are not growing as fast now at as fast a rate as we did for many years. So I was, from both counts, sensitive about making too much of numbers. You talked about kind of two different views of Mormonism. There's the, the kind of respectable view that Mormons have been come to seeing the fresh-faced missionaries knocking on doors, uh, the tabernacle choir, uh, families and, and students with shaved faces at BYU. Um, and then there's the contrast of kind of the strange cultish kind of group of people who believe in prophets and, and golden Bibles and things. and So there's these two contrasting views. How do you approach both of those audiences in, in a short introduction? Um, I, I assume you'd, you'd want Mormons to be interested, but you also want to confront that idea of Mormons as this mm -hmm. strange group that believes these kind of crazy things, angels mm -hmm. and miracles. Mm -hmm. Well, Claudia has a, um, a great answer to this. If someone says to her, how can you believe in the Book of Mormon and the gold plates? Her answer is, come to church with me next Sunday and I will sh introduce you to a lot of people who believe in angels and gold plates. And the truth underlying that is that these things are not crazy in themselves. They're mainly crazy because they're unfamiliar. And if Mormons... Um, if you live in the Mormon community, it's not crazy at all. Gold plates are just second nature. Of course we have gold plates. So I think the answer is not to try to somehow make sense of them, but simply to tell the story as directly in a sane tone of voice as you can. And that's one reason why I want to write a book on the gold plates is I just want to go right into the middle and just talk about them. And I, I hope that will dissipate some of the the oddity that uh, surrounds the now. It's almost where miracle meets empiricism, where you've got it's these gold plates. It's a miracle, but they're, they're material. It's... You know, there's a truth to that. And I, one of the points I want to make in this book is that the, the people who write scornful accounts of Joseph Smith are always at great pains to describe these gold plates in detail, their size, you know, their possible weight, how they were made. 
And in the very process of doing so, they reify these things. They become real, even though they think they're imaginary. So I think there's some something's gained just by talking about them. Uh, pretty soon they come into existence. With the plates, too, I mean, obviously the biggest the biggest counter would be, well, where are they today? Um, but there were some witnesses who claimed to have seen the plates, and some people have called into question the statements of those witnesses, saying, well, they, they were saying it was a spiritual thing. They didn't really see the plates or, mm-hmm. or anything. What, what do you think about that? I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, Richard Mao, friend of Mormons and president of the Fuller Theological Seminary, has told me that he is a rationalist Christian. He thinks there, there's evidence for Christianity. And he said to me, he said, the witnesses are one of the best things you've got. Because there it is, a, a real deposition. There have been many explanations of the witnesses. One, well, they're all part of the same family. They're in on the story. Two, they're under the influence of Joseph Smith. He had sort of quasi-hypnotic powers to suggest things, and then they, people would believe. And nowadays, it's uh, these few statements where uh, Martin Harris and others say we saw with spiritual eyes. And the argument uh, I want to make is that they were almost required to say they saw with spiritual eyes because there's a long Christian tradition that turns up in Mormon revelations itself that the things of God are too powerful for man to see, that you will be wiped out. God not show all his work to, to Moses in the first book of Moses, or it'd be, he would be overwhelmed by it. And so the in their passage in the New Testament and many other places. So that these people, having had this experience, had to say, I saw them with spiritual eyes, because that's the only way that it would be feasible. Did they say only spiritual eyes, or were there yeah. other... And there's also the testimony of the eight. Um, and I, I haven't looked at their testimonies for a while, so I don't recall if they talk about spiritual eyes or not, but their experience didn't include the angels, yeah. so it was just... See, the strange thing is the eight is more persuasive to the modern skeptical mind than the three. Because having an angel there sort of changes it. If it's just a matter, the, the word heft is a very strong word in that testimony. Because there they are. They're just holding these weighty objects in, in their hands. And um, I myself can't tell you right now if they say spiritualize, but uh, I, I don't think so. Um, on the same topic, back in the 50s, there was a Roman Catholic sociologist, um, Thomas O'Day, and he wrote a book on the Mormons, but he predicted that uh, the Mormon emphasis on education, on becoming educated, was in a collision course with some of the beliefs about angels and golden plates and some of the more miraculous mm-hmm. things. Has time borne that out, or, or do you see something else happening there between education and the view of, of the miraculous in Mormonism? Yeah. That's an interesting item for me because at the very end of the book, he began. He does say that despite this collision course, apparently, he had met some Mormons who seemed to be educated and yet could cope with um, the, all the questions. And it so happened that he, he spoke at a fireside in the mission home in Cambridge when I was an undergraduate. And he met all of these law students and scientists and undergraduates doing this and that. Uh, and we just had a nice discussion with him. 
So I think in that moment where he was actually encountering real-life Mormons, he began to see what has turned out to be the fact. That is, there are lots of Mormons who go to graduate school, they become reasonably learned, uh, they develop a kind of an open-minded view towards the world, and it doesn't destroy them. There are lots who do leave. I don't want to underestimate that. But it, it isn't a surefire doom for the church just that you become educated. In fact, quite, quite the opposite. I'm amazed right now just how many vigorous young Mormons are coming along in, in scholarship. You've talked about students who are uh, able to, to survive in the academy or even thrive in the academy, and you've, you've talked about them as being outliers on the intellectual landscape these young Mormons, what did you mean by that? They're outliers on the intellectual landscape. They're outliers in the sense that um, their fellow graduate students and their professors don't quite know what to make of them. They, they cannot understand how they can believe in all these fabulous stories and still be educated persons. It's just a puzzle to them. And that would be true for myself, as well as for these these graduate students. And part of the problem is there is no bridge between um, more thoughtful Mormon belief and, say, thoughtful Christian belief. We think there's a bridge. You believe in the resurrection. We believe in the gold plates. But Christian thought has been so assimilated into larger issues. You know, you've got Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich and a host, even Aquinas or Calvin, who've made, who've come to grips with reason. That is, by reason meaning what educated, reasonable people believe. Mormons have never found a way of explaining what they believe that makes any sense to people out. We just bear testimony. We just tell the story. We haven't shown that there's something gorgeous and rich and powerful and compelling about believing in gold plates or continual revelation. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that Mormons have confronted those questions differently or perhaps even overlooked the same type of questions that an Aquinas would yeah, yeah. You know, it's a good question. I don't know fully the answer, but if you look at the history of Mormon theology through the 19th century, almost no dialogue with other philosophers. B.H. Roberts will c- cite uh, William James and a, f- a few others, Schopenhauer, a few others of his, his time. But there's no real engagement with James. There's, it's sort of proof texting. You take a little bit of James work it into your story to sort of support what you believe. Uh, and why that is, I don't know exactly. Partly it's professional in that none of these people are coming up through graduate schools. None of them are trying to make a living as a theologian where they're compelled to talk to the theologians. They, they're just really church people. Partly it's that the gravitational pull of Mormonism, I've always said, it's a black hole. It's just so strong that it just pulls all your thoughts and all you want to do is think about Mormonism. So I think this will change as more and more of our young scholars try to make a living 
as a philosopher or a theologian or something else. They're going to have to to grapple with uh, larger currents of world thinking. Do you think up-and-coming um, young scholars who are also Mormon face uh, face some, some barriers based on that or perhaps would, would want to focus on other areas besides Mormonism based on the fact that it, it, it can be difficult to be thought of as, yeah. a, oh, he's a Mormon and, a, and yeah. a philosopher, rather than he's a philosopher, oh, and yeah, and he's also Mormon. Yeah, I think it is a barrier. I think it is actually a, a negative factor in job decisions, that you went to BYU, you wrote your dissertation on a Mormon topic. Uh, they're just going to be, they're going to think of you as parochial, and isolated and um, maybe a little wacky. So I think that that, uh, that is a real problem. I personally do not recommend that students write on Mormon topics. I think we have to truly become engaged to the larger world. There's nothing in our theology that says we shouldn't love Buddhists as much as we love our Mormon neighbors next door, and we should be as interested in Buddhist thought. We should be interested in the Mediterranean in the 15th century. That's God's world, too. And we should be writing about those things and making them luscious. Maybe, in some ways, from a Mormon perspective, going back to the Mormon Review, I still think... But that happens automatically. You don't have to say, now, how would a Mormon look at this? You just do your thinking about the Mediterranean, and your Mormon stuff will, will work its way into it. It seems like that's kind of the path that you followed as a student. Um, you came up and, and, and studied um, early American or colonial history and that sort of thing, and, and, and you know, later on in your career, then you wrote about Mormonism. But there seems to be a few uh, bits along the way in between. Uh, there was a in the 60s, when Dialogue began publishing, you had an exchange with, uh, what, was it Wesley Walters, who had talked about the timing of the first vision. And were you already employed when that happened, or, or were you still going to school? I, I don't remember. Uh, when was that? That was, uh, I think, the late 60s. And at that point, I had been teaching at BYU and was about to take a job at Boston University. So I was, yeah, I was identifying myself as an early American historian, not as a Mormon, Mormon historian. So at, at that time, do you, think, do you think the climate's changed at all from that time? Because you did write a few things on Mormonism, but you, you were establishing yourself yeah. as a different type yeah. of historian. So have you seen much change from the 60s to today as far as what students uh, expect when they're, when they're going on to higher education? There's, a, of course, many more in many more fields. Um, and uh, I still think, however, there is a tendency to just be so fascinated with Mormons, Mormonism you just have to write on it. And I'm, I'm of two minds of that. I've been saying they sh people should do other things and really become engaged with the world at large. And I believe that. But I also like the idea of keeping that Mormon pot stewing somewhere on the stove and keep thinking of yourself as a Mormon scholar. 
In the very short introduction book, you have a section on temples. And temples for Latter-day Saints can be a difficult issue to write about because there are things that, that we typically don't write about when it comes to temples. How did you approach that in a book about Mormonism when you had to talk about temples? I think my, um, my major insight and um, tactic for handling this turns on the word secret. We keep saying, no, no, it's not secret, it's sacred. I think it's sacred because it's secret, and that this, to say, you know, up front, that part of the way that we create a sacred space where we really can come from God, is to say this is so holy and powerful, we cannot even talk about it outside of the temple, and that is totally uh, understandable. The Jews do not speak the name of God; it's too holy to speak. Most religions have sacred places where you can't go. So I think we should just say that's we have made a strenuous effort to create sacred places all over the world, and being secret about it is one part of it. What sticks out to you, and in, as in, Joseph Smith, they started with the Kirtland Temple, and they, they went on to the Nauvoo Temple, and kind of the, the progression of temple rites. Um, how do you see that story unfolding as Joseph Smith changed his views on temples or revealed more on temples? I see it pretty much as a two-stage operation. I think the first stage is rooted in which would be called the initiatory ordinances in the temple today, is rooted in the book of Exodus and the sanctification of priests. Joseph Smith takes the garment, the washings, the anointing, and says this is going to apply to all my people and where that comes from or why he does it no one knows I mean, there's no revelation where he says all this that we know of but that's where it starts but then after he encounters masonry in um, in Illinois I think he became quite enthralled with the possible of a idea of a fraternal order where people would be bound to one another and where you would tell a sacred story. And though his his endowment is quite different from the Masonic order, I think it, uh, it was one of those things that, that opened a window in his mind to this other, uh, this other way of, of covenanting with God. There's an interesting part in, um, in the biography of President McKay that, that Greg Prince wrote when he's talking about the first time people go to the temple. And uh, President McKay gave a talk once where he, he said the first time he went, it, it just seemed kind of foreign to him. Uh, when, when young Latter-day Saints first go through the temple, some of them come out and say you know that they really uh, enjoyed it. Others come out puzzled. They're not perhaps not uh, prepared for a ritual that way. Uh, why the various reactions to, to temples for a Latter-day Saint, even those who grew up in the church that seemed to go through the temple that first time, and, yeah. it seems so different. Well, I think part of the problem uh, is that we live in the 21st century rather than the 19th century. The 19th century, after the 1840s, is the age of the fraternal order and the ritual 
I mean, if you have ever gone through an order of the arrow ceremony for the Boy Scouts, yeah. well, you know, didn't you feel a little resonance with, yeah. with Temple? And there were things like that all over. And it seemed right as a way of bonding people. Of course, the great thing about the temple is it bonds male and female. It's based on marriage rather than fraternal bonding. Um, but it all made sense. Now we kind of look down our noses at these fraternal orders. They just seem a little silly. Uh, and uh, and the, the temple suffers from the same thing. So you talked about creating sacred space just a moment ago. Um, you, you've also talked about an experience in New York City, I believe, when they were dedicating the temple there. And uh, talk a little bit about that experience as far as Mormons creating sacred space mm-hmm. and what went on in, in New York City when the, when the temple was dedicated. Mm-hmm. Well, the incongruity of a temple in New York City sort of sparked people's imagination everywhere. Claudia had a student who was Italian. He gave her a clipping from um, a paper from Florence talking about this temple in New York. You know, it was really, as President Hinckley put it, it was Zion and Babylon. It just seemed to join things that that didn't uh, belong. But um, along the way, we got the notion of of having a conference on sacred space in the city and got uh, the cooperation of the Columbia Religion Department and a little theological seminary, the Auburn Theological Seminary, putting this together and had one really terrific scholar, Jonathan C. Smith, to, to talk about it. And it's a problem that lots of people have. You've got Sikhs driving cabs in New York who have to find a place to stop and offer prayers. And they have to have these little these little sort of enclaves scattered around the city where they, at the prayer time, they can go in and, and offer their prayers. So uh, it's not an unfamiliar familiar problem. Another subject that's really interesting, and you actually um, do an entire chapter on it, is uh, what you call cosmology. You talk about cosmology. Um, give us a little information about uh, about cosmology, the concept of cosmology, and then we'll talk about um, cosmo- the cosmology of Mormonism. My roommate in college, um, Kent Nielsen, took a course from Harlow Shapley uh, that was famed, called Cosmology. And I've always been fascinated, and I think a lot of people are fascinated with black holes again, but where the the Big Bang and the universe and how it's shaped, you know, the the largest picture we can possibly get of existence. Uh, And it moves from physics to metaphysics. That is, what are the internal structures that we don't necessarily see but are there? And um, Joseph had a cosmological mind. That is, it this whole business about the spirit of Christ radiating from the center and bringing order and law and light to minds and to atoms and everything. And then sort of the book of Moses' visions of all things means that he liked to sort of look at the vast spaces of time. So there, it isn't a developed cosmology, but it's enough to be uh, intriguing. Book of Abraham's uh, 
all of its astronomy. But then what I think is also part of cosmology is what I call the stories of eternity. That is, how the human intelligence wends its way through this cosmos in its pursuit of, of salvation. And again, you just can't get any larger. You, you can't. You go to the limits of human imagination in Joseph Smith's thought. And so, and it gets down to the big picture, um, the universe and universes, down to the single individual. And Joseph Smith talked about intelligences. And it's still kind of puzzling today. Um, there are still some different perspectives about what exactly he meant by that. Um, and intelligence and intelligences. Talk a little bit about that and, and human human identity and intelligence. Some yeah. of the different views of that. Mormons all know we can't agree on that. If we try to pursue how it actually happened, we get uh, we disagree on one another. Uh, I like the Joseph Smith of the King Follett discourse, which has the eternal intelligence that's approached by God, and God offers to take us under his wing and to teach us how to become like him. Uh, that I find a very inspiring story. Some people say, well, it explains um, moral agency, that uh, the human soul was never uh, created. But that isn't the part that interests me. It's just that idea of us coming, as Claudia said, as we were fish swimming in the sea, and then we're sort of formed into schools and shown how to go somewhere. I, I think that's that's a lovely story. It gives a very powerful perspective on all Christian doctrines and uh, all life. Where we differ is in spiritual birth because there are some people who say that we really, um, in a way, we lived before, but we sort of really came into existence when we were, as we always say, underscoring, literally born of God. I don't know why they have to underscore that, but that sounds like childbirth. You know, We want to have a mother in heaven along with a father in heaven. Joseph Smith never taught that. That is a doctrine that came along shortly after his death. Uh, I'm not arguing against it, but um, I don't think it's the key to the story. The key to the story is the moment when God offers to take us under his wing and we agree. That's that's the great moment. Yeah, you've, you've kind of painted the Mormon cosmology with the backdrop of, of the council in heaven as being the main backdrop. And most people who have grown up Mormons perhaps don't realize how, how radical that might be. What sort of implications does that bring up for belief in God, the idea of the pre-mortality and, and this council in heaven and, 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 and eternal uh, beings? Yeah. Well, you can move uh, very close to William James' pragmatism, where he makes this famous statement that every Mormon quotes about God being, in a way... Um, I'm tempted to say an improvisational God, that is a God who simply knows how to do lots of things and is going to help us join him rather than an absolute God who knows everything that's going to happen, has it all planned out in advance and is simply watching us march, do 
through our paces while we're we're here on this earth. And uh, I personally have a, a taste and a liking for a God who is guiding and helping us rather than one who commands and regulates everything. And it seems that you, you really situate yourself uh, within the, that Mormon worldview. Um, you talked about a mantra that you came up with. Um, I think uh, every day... Uh, um, to, today I will be a follower of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. and how did, how did that come from? Where did you come up with the idea of, of making this mantra? Well, I, of course, the most frequently cited scripture in all of Mormondom is are the two sacrament prayers. And there, in both prayers, we're enjoined to always remember him, which literally seems impossible to do, but holds out the promise that by remembering Christ, the powers of heaven, his spirit, the spirit of Christ that runs the universe, can be flow into our minds and hearts, or it can flow in greater quantity into our minds of hearts. So there's always that question of how can you make the most of that, that moment. But then Claudia and I used to walk down from our apartment on 118th and Riverside to the temple to uh, serve as uh, temple workers. And I remember walking along, it was somewhere in the 80s, <laughs> we had to go from 118 to 65th, and just saying, just as sort of a conversational gambit, what would it, what would it be mean? What would it really mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ moment by moment through the day? And uh, so we just you know, had this conversation. And sort of out of that came this sort of tactic, because I came under considerable pressure. This is a high-pressure moment for me, and I need, needed to calm my soul and focus my thoughts. So I, I turned it into a, a mantra which I would chant to myself in good Buddhist fashion um, when I was in particular need of composure. Did it work? Surprisingly well. It's amazing. I mean, you have to try it for yourself, but it really, really worked for me. When I was going into these interviews on NPR, I would be chanting this <laughs> little thing like crazy, <laughs> trying to get my mind to function. <laughs> so where do you situate yourself then? I mean, you're a you're a practicing member of the church, so you, you go to Sunday school. You you, you do the things that uh, that Mormons do. Uh, you talked a little bit about sacraments. Where does the sacrament um, fit in in, uh, in your view of Mormonism? Well, as I as I said, I think that's um, that's a critical moment in our our week. Um, I mean, there are lots of ways of slicing through the gospel. And they're all useful. One is the metaphysical. The Spirit of Christ is like radio waves. It's all around us. We just need to tune ourselves to it, and all this power is in us. Then there's the notion of covenant, which is more personal. I am binding myself to God. I am binding myself to my wife and to my children, and we will stick together. And That's the notion of you know God coming to us in heaven and saying, join me in that... I think the priesthood covenant or the marriage covenant, the new and everlasting covenant, all these covenants are ways of binding us together. 
in my own mind, um, that's really what life is about. It's to find ways that we can work together for good ends. Instead of just being fish swimming in the sea, that we can accomplish things if we know how to work together. So I, I support all... I think Mormons are very good at that. I just think we excel at working together. And uh, so I support all the things that sustain that, that uh, action. Another thing you talk about in the book, kind of along that same uh, line, is the concept of Zion and Joseph Smith's thought and, and how that's borne out today. Yeah. What are some of the differences in the earlier con- conceptions of Zion and how, uh, how we Mormons think of Zion today? Well, I see three stages. In Joseph's life, Zion is a place, it's a city, it's an economic organization, it's a site for the temple, and it was different from the church. The church can be everywhere. You can have branches of the church in Sweden, but you don't have Zion as a place. Then, by the end of his life, this is beginning to expand with the idea of stakes of Zion. You don't just have a Zion, but you have stakes. So that by the time you get to um, Utah, Zion has become a landscape. It's become a landscape of villages. So it's sort of essentially the, the, the Great Basin Kingdom. So people go to Zion. It's still a place. Now Zion is fairly well equated with the church. Wherever there's the church, there is Zion. And you can gather just by going to the sacrament meeting. Uh, but I think that because of our history, Zion as a as a total social organization could at any time spring up, spring away. And that's what we dream of. We'll go back to Jackson County. There'll be a new social order. Right now, I don't know where it will go. Warner Woodworth... And James Lucas are arguing that Zion is a frame of mind. It's a sense of stewardship in creating a righteous society interleaved with the rest of society. It's the way we conduct our lives, and especially the philanthropies we get involved in. So I think that's possible, that we, we won't ever go back to Jackson County. We'll turn the world into Jackson County by seepage. We'll just kind of find our way through it. Uh, I personally think that's going to be the great question of the 21st century for the church. In what sense is it going to try to improve the world, not just the church, but the world, by using its resources for righteous purposes? Philanthropy may be it. We're, We're moving that direction. I think we probably will elaborate that. The fourth fold mission of the church points exactly in that direction. Did you expect that? Did you kind of see? I was surprised to see them add a fourth mission. I was surprised, but we all knew that this is the Thomas Monson impulse, is kindly service. He's been that, he's told those stories for 50 years. So that was no surprise. The question is, how would it work out institutionally? And this is one. Right now, I don't know what it... I mean, it was announced and then dropped. I don't know where it's headed, but I assume somewhere is, someone is thinking about 
what the implications are. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Richard. I really appreciate it. Um, in closing, maybe you can give us one more thought about the future of Mormonism from your perspective. One issue that has uh, intrigued me is population. You know, we've got all these Rodney Stark projections about Mormon growth, which are challenged and which now are not being fulfilled. Um, but the fact is that 99.7% of the world is not Mormon. We are an infinitesimal little speck. So the question is, how do we fulfill our mission? Do we do it with one, one phrase, join us, join us, and we will give you a good life, and we will be strong? Or do we have some mission that goes beyond the limits of our own membership? That is, are we 11 in the lump? Are we in some way meant to improve the world by alliances with other good forces, by other things we say or do that can be helpful to people without joining the church? And I don't know the answer to that, but the one I am working on right now is the Mormon talent, which is embedded deep in our culture, to know how to work together. And it seems to me you could picture a time that would grow out of what Mormons are thought of as today as the people who in any situation work for the good of the cause and know how to help people work together for two reasons. One, we tend to be selfless. We, we're taught not to promote ourselves it's in group project situations. And two, we respect authority. We know the value of having someone who has the last word, and we want to support those authorities. We don't want to re resist them. And with those two instincts, I would hope that Mormons in classrooms, on stages, on football fields, in boardrooms, in workplaces, in schools, wherever they are, would be sort of coagulating forces. They would bring people together and help them to, to work together. That isn't sort of a high moral end, but I think it would lead to harmony and peace and might radiate out into world peace as it contrasted to sort of personal and social peace. I don't know that we have to have a campaign, but I don't think it hurts to articulate it so we recognize what we're doing when we do what we do almost naturally. Thanks, Richard. My pleasure, Blair. We'd like to thank you once more for listening to the FAIR podcast. As always, any questions or comments about this and other episodes can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org where this podcast can be downloaded. It is also now available in iTunes for free download. Tune in to the next FAIR podcast when I sit down with communication theorist John Durham-Peters. I bought a new microphone so the sound should be a little bit better in future episodes. Thanks again for listening.